For those, I assume that everyone knows why we applauded. How many of you do not have any idea why you started clapping when I came in the room? Last Sunday, I got to Charity Baptist Church a little bit late because I had taught Sunday school here, then drove up there to speak, and they were very nervous that I wasn't coming. (laughs) And I don't think many of them knew that that was happening so when I walked in the room, they started clapping. And I said, that was the first time I think that ever happened in my life. And so I said that last Sunday or sometime. So now it's happened twice in my life. The other time I can remember being applauded is when I spilled my tray at the cafeteria at school. I remember getting applauded for that. Why do they clap for that? I don't understand, but. Luke chapter, excuse me, chapter 19. If you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Our passage that we're going to read this morning is verses 11 through verse 27. The parable of the Minas. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. I will be reading out of the New King James Version as is our custom. God's word says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth. I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why, then, did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name this morning for each one here. And we thank you for the privilege of having your word before us, your spirit within us, your people around us. And Lord, that we might have all of this 
to aid us in our worship of you, we cannot cease to give you thanks. Knowing that that worship is is, uh, not only to glorify your name and to lift you up, but for our benefit as well. That by it, we can serve you and complete our purpose that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that we might be attentive to the responsibilities today with all of who we are and what we are. That we might give ourselves entirely to them. That we might want to worship you and serve you in spirit and in truth as your word is described for us. We thank you that you've come to us as truth as the Word made flesh to dwell among us. You sacrifice Your Son on Calvary's cross to cover our sins and then to conquer sin and death by His resurrection today to be our mediator in heavenly realms. This morning I have a lot to share and I don't have time enough because of the constraints of this world on us and your patience. So let's get right at it. Um, We have talked extensively throughout the Gospel of Luke of the price of discipleship. We have seen that regularly Christ does not widen the field to be inclusive of people, but has narrowed it. He has repeatedly said with various descriptions that have ended with this statement, you cannot be my disciple. And each one of those we have studied and investigated as we come to them. And we really come to what I, I sense is a, is a uh, wrapping up in a complete uh, description of the finality of that statement. Maybe we don't measure quite strongly enough when Christ says, if you are not willing to take your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You're not worthy of me. If you're going to put your hand to the plow and look over your shoulder and look from behind, you're not worthy of my, of me or my kingdom. That if, uh, and again and again and again, he's going to lay out these, you cannot be my disciples if this is what's going on in your life. We have tried to determine our place in those statements. And in our passage this this morning, it comes to a head. And really, perhaps one of the more frightening of the parables. For we find really in this parable uh, that we think of in terms of uh, the one or two that are given accolades by God and we neglect the many who are destroyed by His hand at the end. In addition to this work of Christ of continuing to limit the field and and especially when you think about Him making some hard teachings and people scratch their heads and says, this is hard to accept and they stopped following Jesus based upon difficult teaching. Something we could stand a little more of in our churches these days. Willingness to teach difficult things, even if people scratch their head and walk out and never come back. 
Christ is willing to do that. In fact, He actively engaged in that process. Even then, with all of that narrowing of the field and limiting of, of statements, we have many following Him. But even after all of that apparent screening and, and filtering of disciples, even after all of that, we still find one of the twelve, one of the twelve being a betrayer of His innermost circle, betraying our Lord and Savior. And so I am not here thinking that because we have taught in these other passages that we have accomplished necessarily the task that they are intended to do. Secondly, we have looked recently where Christ has been talking about the end. What will it be like? What is the ultimate purpose of Christ's coming? Where does it, where does it conclude? It doesn't conclude at the cross. It doesn't conclude at, at, at Pentecost. Its conclusion is when the Son of Man returns. That is, return, then we will see some things, some of the finality that God has in mind for us, that ultimateness that He has. That theme similarly is going to be carried here. In fact, that's what's coming to the minds of the disciples. For they were sure that an earthly kingdom was about to be established. We're on our way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a dry, dusty road, uphill all the way. And they're sure something is impending. They can feel it. They can sense it. There's a, there's a, there's a building all the way through Christ's trip to Jerusalem. And now it's about to come to complete fruition. And in their mind and, and thinking, because they're uh, dead in their senses to Christ's statements that bluntly says, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over, tried, and crucified, and raised again the third day. They, they won't want to hear that, and so they don't hear that. They're expecting the kingdom. And we come into this passage with these two themes of what is Christ's ultimate purpose in coming, carried with the theme of what does it really mean to be one of his disciples. We've just come off of a statement in the prior chapter that asked this question. When the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? And this is the conjoining of these two themes. The theme of what does it really mean to be a disciple of Christ with the theme of Christ's ultimate purpose, the ultimate conclusion of all things. And He's wrapped them up in this single statement. What I'm sorry, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Now, this morning I want to remind you all the way back to Luke chapter 1 of who we're writing to. Because I don't want you to place yourself outside of the audience that Christ has in mind with the parable of the Minas. Luke is writing to Theophilus. And we talked about that some time ago. That Theophilus means friendly towards God. The one he is writing to, the one who we need to keep in mind throughout the Gospel of Luke, are not enemies of God, but those who are friendly towards God. And what Christ has been repeatedly saying is that that is not enough. Being friendly towards God is not sufficient. That is not the relationship God is interested in. 
Theophilus, Theo meaning God, Philus coming from the phileo, which is that love of friendship, friendship love. He says, are you a friendly towards God? Or are you His disciple? Are you truly a follower of Jesus Christ? And whether Theophilus was a person or a category of people is really irrelevant. But if it was a person, he is addressing this one person saying, oh, that you would come to be more than just friendly towards God. And to a category of people, oh, we are called to something much more significant, a relationship. And the parable of Minas brings that element of Luke raises it to the surface and forces us to consider it carefully. When the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Is not a statement made to the lost in the world, but to the God-friendly people in church. Before we look at Luke 19.11, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word. And we... Pray that you might have liberty to work in our midst, that all that is said might be in accordance with the order of truth by your Spirit's power and direction, its unction. Lord, that you might guard this time from the desires of men, the thoughts of men, or the will of men. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The disciples hear Jesus Christ talking about salvation coming to him. The fuller context is all the events of Jericho. And that takes us way back into uh, the, the blind, blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight. Uh, stretches us back into some of the prior uh, parables, some of the teaching. And when they see this all coming together here at Jericho, and they're on their way out of Jericho, and they're heading uh, west towards Jerusalem and they're considering all that's happened, and they're, they're sensing the things of what's going on, uh, they apparently thought that the kingdom of God was about to appear. And Jesus Christ knew that, and so he speaks this parable in reference to them who were still having earthly ideas of what God is all about, of what the purposes of God, the, the ultimate fulfillment of, of Jesus' uh, coming was all about. And so he's going to set them straight in a very powerful fashion that's going to address us today, even in our understanding of the kingdom of God and what it entails. He begins with a certain nobleman, and we understand who that nobleman is. He goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And again, he is referencing the ultimate. This is not the ultimate work of God. It is it is going to be a, a finished work. It is going to work the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection I'm referring to. But it's not, it's not the culmination of what Christ is. It, it is certainly a pinnacle, but it has a far-reaching purpose chronologically. It is a pinnacle theologically, but not chronologically. In other words, God still has something that he, He's going to be involved in, and that is to reach the lost planetarily, uh, globally, with the gospel, to reach out to every kind of people with the gospel, to reach out to every person, uh, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that they might have opportunity to come to Christ, and then 
that he has a ultimate kingdom that he wants to implement, but it's going to be some time. And so he describes these terms to set our sights farther out. He says a far country. And so we are called, Christ will go to a far country to, re, to receive for himself a kingdom and though he will return. So the implication here is that we are looking over a lengthy period of time for the time necessary to travel to this far country, the time necessary to receive the kingdom, and the time necessary to return. And the whole force of this is, is that this is not something that's going to happen next week during the Passover. It's not going to happen this week. It's not going to happen tonight when we get to Bethphagia. It's not going to happen right away. There's a lengthy period of time before things are culminated chronologically. So what's going to happen in the interim? In verse 13, he says, In the interim, he calls ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, Do business till I come. And now we have another introduction of a symbol and, and, and as we've shared and seen in the parabolic teaching of Christ, that these symbols have spiritual truths or meanings. And so this is not really a parable about how you handle your money. That's not what this is about, and that's not what my message is going to be about, because that's not the purpose that Christ had in this parable at all. He was just using something they were familiar with to preach and proclaim spiritual truth. The minas would be comparable to about three months' salary uh, in that day, uh, and there's some variation there. And again, the, the amount isn't quite so important uh, to the thing. It's just the idea that, that this would be several thousand dollars in our perspective. Um, let's say you made 80, 90, whatever you're making, I don't know, 50,000, 20, 300, I don't know. Um, it would be a fourth of your annual income. Let's just say that. And this is not a fourth of your annual income, but a fourth of his. What he could make in three months. And so he brings these minas to them, to his servants, and to us, even in our mindset, if I, if I showed up with twenty or thirty thousand dollars and put it in your hand, or fifteen thousand or ten thousand, say, here you go, um, hang on to this, uh, be a good steward of it, I'll be back to, and, uh, here's some instructions on what to do with it, and I'll be back, and I expect it to be well managed in the interim. Well, you consider that a pretty high trust even to this day. So he has put something in. So what does the mina represent? What does it stand for here? I would contend that in the context of where we have just been in Jericho, of the teaching prior to that that we have here in Luke, stretching back into chapter 17 and 18, that we again have a reference to that faith that Jesus Christ has placed into all men. But that mina represents a very special entrustment, if you will, a trust that he has placed into all men, and that is the capacity to have faith. This is not something that is only in believers. When, so you'll hear me use the word salvific faith, because most of the time when faith is talked about in Scripture, it's referring to trusting in God, because that is the right use of faith. But that is not the only use of faith. And we recognize that even men and women in the world have faith. All men do. They all have the capacity to trust and believe. All of them do. And frankly, some of the world have greater faith 
or are placing their faith in things that I would never place my faith in. You know, I can't figure out people that want to place their faith uh, in a teaching that there is a there was a huge, very developed uh, civilization here on this continent that had huge cities and fought mammoth wars when there is zero archaeological evidence of it. They have a lot more faith than I do. I'm, of course, referring to the Book of Mormon. I can go to Israel and look at the ruins, and they dig around and they find places that are described in my Bible. They find names of people like Pilate on etched in stone and buried for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And, and my faith is pretty small, really, because I can go over there and touch those places and walk in those places. Jerusalem still exists. And so I'm impressed by a Mormon's faith, frankly, to believe in places that are described in his holy book that, that there's zero... Arche- in fact, the archaeological evidence is, is ex- opposite. It proves it wrong, but they still believe it. So we know that all men have the capacity of faith. And that's very important to what we're teaching here. Remember, this is all being built off of when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find faith on the earth? And the expressions of those faith that we had in blind Bartimaeus, remember, who said, I will not let any man keep a barrier between me and Christ. This is his expression of faith. And Jesus Christ says, your faith has made you well. Of Zacchaeus, who says, no one is going to keep me. Not even my own personal limitations. Just as blind Bartimaeus was going to keep it, let his blindness keep him from seeing Jesus. So Zacchaeus says, I'm not going to let my stature keep me from seeing Jesus. I will overcome this obstacle. And, and Christ looks at him and already is well aware of him and says, I'm going to visit you today. And, and his faith is exemplified immediately. And being obedient to what God has told others to do and they didn't have the faith to do it. And so the whole context of what we've been building through this has been focused on what is genuine faith about? What is and how are we to employ it and and exercise it and place it? And and what are we doing with this capacity that God has given us? It's not something you can create within you. God has given you the capacity to have faith. It is His gift. And a very precious one. More precious than three months' salary. So the Mina is representing this very precious thing that God has given every one of His image bearers. All men. All mankind. What are we doing with it? So God has given this great gift And now he's gone. Now we have to exercise it. And he's told us how to exercise it. He's told us what to do with it. Even here in the parable, he tells them exactly what to do. He says, here's this, here's this, uh, gift, or here's this entrustment. I'm giving this, entrusting this into your care, and I'm going to tell you what to do with it. Verse 13 says, do business till I come. He's given them instructions precise instructions of what to do with this thing called faith while he's gone. 
in my absence, here's what you're supposed to do with it. Do business with it. And so these minas, are you're going to take them and you're going to invest them. You're going to buy and sell. You're going to do what it takes to multiply them. And this is his instruction to them. He wasn't just give it to them and say, oh, you know, figure it out. He gave them the minas and then gave them instructions of what to do with them. Similarly, God has given us faith and then told us what to do with it. Place your faith in me. Trust in me. Walk with me. Walk in obedience to me. So God has given us clear instruction on what to do with our faith. That precious gift that is given to all men. You can't generate it within you. Your parents didn't give it to you. It is something that God has instilled in you, the capacity to believe, even in things you can't see. Well, what happens? Verse 14. But his citizens hated him. Now, we immediately find out that this realm are not all followers, are they? So we're dealing with the world in general. We're not dealing with just followers of Jesus. We're not dealing with his disciples. We're dealing with a larger group. And that's why we're talking about something that has been generally given, the generality of God's grace. It's something that God has given all men. And some would consider the meaning to be the image of God. I think we're very specific because Jesus Christ has been very specific so far to talk about faith. What are you going to do with this faith? And so God has given this capacity to all men, but the citizens hate him. God has given us this wondrous gift. And in response, we hate him. And in fact, look what the citizens do. It says, they sent a delegation saying, we will not have this man reign over us. So we have ten servants that are given a mina each. Same amount to each person. This is different than the parable of the talents. If you recall, don't associate these. These are different. This is, has a different purpose, different objective, different instruction completely. And so each one is given a mina. Ten people. Ten servants. Each given a mina each. The same amount. We all are given that same capacity. We stand before God responsible for stewardship of the exact same commodity. And here, with this precious gift entrusted to all men, most men will hate him. Ten servants are given ten minas. And told what to do with it. And we're sure that out of the ten, the majority would do what was right. Because we believe what most humanists teach, and that is the man is basically good. And we really don't follow very well the doctrine of Scripture that is the man is basically evil today. And so what are you going to do with these? God calls us to them. Here's my instruction. Do business till I come. Place your faith in me. Do obediently what I tell you to do. Now what? We don't want you to reign over us. Seven out of the ten are making this declaration. You say, how do you know it's seven out of the ten? Because only three are willing to give any accounting at all of their mina. 
So our conclusion is that seven of the ten are, which is the overwhelming majority, which in America means you're right. Right? Because if you're in the majority party and you win 51% of the vote, you're, you're right. Correct? So seven, they, I mean, that's a, that, that's sending a message. Right? I mean, that's what our politicians, if a politician got a 70% of the vote, what would he say? I'm going to Washington with a mandate from the people. So here is a right presentation in our mind of a mandate from the people. We hate God. We do not want Him to reign over us. And fundamentally, this is what keeps people from becoming Christians. Fundamentally, if you are here today and you have not received Christ your Savior, this is your heart. You do not want to surrender yourself to God's self. You will not have Him, Lord of your life. I will not let you have reign, have rule, have control. I will not give it to you, God. I'm going to hold it for myself. And whenever you have that attitude or that condition of your heart or mind, you are saying to God, I hate you. Not, I'm friendly towards you. Not, uh, I'm neutral towards you. There are no such things as neutrality to God. I hate you. I don't want you to have reign over my life. And you've heard me teach before, you know, that there's a group out there that says, well, you can accept Christ your Savior and then later as your Lord. And I tell you that that is exactly the opposite of the truth. The truth is that if you do not have Him as Lord, He will never be your Savior. Because if He is not the Lord, He could not save you. If if He is not the Lord, you have not submitted yourself to Him. And if you haven't submitted yourself to Him, He cannot reign in your life and you will not ever become a believer. Until that is corrected. Until you know that Christ is Lord, He will never be your Savior. Not really. You can pray the sinner's prayer, but it won't mean anything because you're still in charge of you. The sinner's prayer is a response to recognizing that God is God. He's my master. He says this is the way it's going to have to be. And I have to surrender myself. I have to humiliate myself to that. And I have to accept His way as the only way. And that demands that we make Christ Lord first. Then He can save us. So these didn't want Him as Lord. We don't want you to be in control of our life. We want to live our lives our way. We're going to use our Mina the way we want to use our Mina. I'm going to place my faith wherever I want, even if it's on me myself. I don't want you telling me, and I'm not going to follow what you tell me to do with my faith. I'll put it where I please. As long as we all believe something, it's okay, right? Your way or my way doesn't matter. Except to the Master, it matters a great deal. Seven out of ten reject Him completely. And I wish it were, that these numbers were accurate to reality of the general populace. I wish that 30% um, were good enough to at least acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, as God. I don't know that that's even true. But here we have a seven. Overwhelming majority. I hate you, don't want you to reign over my life. Fundamentally, that is what keeps people from Christ. 
They don't want Him to run things in them. I want to stay in charge. I won't submit. And this is rebellion. And let's look at the end of these seven. It goes to verse 27. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 19 says, Bring here, but bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The end of this, you don't want Christ to reign when he comes at his fulfillment of, of his kingdom promises, when he comes to rule and to reign, his, the, the end result is destruction. You don't want me to reign over you? then you're going to get the brunt of my judgment. Gather them together. You see it? Bring them here. They're going to have to answer to me because, you know, the fact is is that the Lord is the Lord whether you acknowledge Him or not. God is God whether you admit to it or not. And fundamentally, when He gets down to the end, He still has the authority to carry, bring you in and to slay you for rejecting Him. We recognize those authorities when they show up. And we've talked about the divine audit. Remember that series on the divine audit that we had of the unjust steward? That Once he realized he was going to be audited, he was like, oh, well, i got to do something. There is an audit coming. And when that audit arrives, we're going to have to give an answer. And if you've been saying, I hate you and I reject you, I'm going to run things my way, why should you be surprised that he doesn't gather together and slay you? This is the end. This is the conclusion for those who will not give their faith, place their faith in Jesus Christ. Who will not recognize Him as the Lord. They will be slain and enter into eternal death. And I'm sure that most of you here go, well, I'm not in that category. Okay, we're okay. Um, we're part of the three out of ten. And uh, by the way, it's the disciples he's talking to here, remember? I want you to notice the brevity with which he takes with the seven out of ten. Seven out of ten are the majority, but because Christ is speaking to his disciples because of their wrong thinking, he isn't spending a lot of time on them. So we have one verse at the end, and we have this... Uh, pretty brief statement here at the beginning describing them. They hate him. They're not going to have him over him. And Christ recognizes that and they're going to be destroyed. But here we go, disciples. Let's talk about these remaining three. There's three left. It says most of us here in the church overwhelmingly would put ourselves in the place of the minority here. Um, Let's study it. We find that Christ is going to return, verse 15. He will have received his kingdom, which means he would have had all authority over all of these servants, and he will exercise that authority. He's going to command those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. Why? So that he could know how much every man had gained by trading. What have you done with the capacity of faith that God has placed within you? What have you gained? his kingdom. There's no work that you can do to create faith. 
is simply a decision of where to direct it. They did not earn the mina. They did not work to acquire it. They were given the mina. And they were given directions of how to direct its investment. And the master had an expectation I want you to see. It was not whether anyone gained by trading, but how much everyone gained by trading. God has a high expectation for his people. He expects us to take this precious commodity and put it to work in our lives to direct it toward Him and allow Him to multiply its investment. The first comes. And the first word tells us a little bit about Him. Master. You see, the other seven said, You are not our Master. We will not call you that. We will not submit ourselves. We will not bring ourselves to, to, to lower ourselves, to condescend ourselves to you in that manner. We will not do it. But this one says, Master. Calls him Master. An evidence that that somewhere in his history, or and yet to this day, he has condescended himself. He has humbled himself, and he has recognized that this is the one who has ruled over his life, that has all authority over him, and that he must respond as a slave to the master and obey implicitly. All this is tied up in this one phrase, master. This seems that at least mentally he has made that commitment, and now he's going to give some proof of it. He's going to give proof of his application of this mina to the investments the master told him to put it to. The master says, put my mina to work. Do business with it till I come. And Jesus Christ has directed us, listen, this precious gift of faith I've given to you, put it where it belongs till I come. And where it belongs is upon me and upon the Father and the Spirit, upon our work, it is to be placed upon our, that truth that you've heard from me. You cannot be my disciples if you are not willing to accept all of who I am and what I call you to. This level of obedience is what I call you to. And there is evidence of that. Faith without works is what? James tells us. It's dead. That's not James Oskowski. That's James in the Bible. Book of James. I think James Oskowski would say that too. Faith without works is dead. And so when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, there should be an evidentiary for that. And you go to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, you look at that and you read through it, it says, by faith they did. By faith they did. By faith they did. The evidence of faith isn't walking around with some uh, statement of a sinner's prayer. This Here it is. I got this little notebook that says I prayed the sinner's prayer. In July, 1970. I have one of those, by the way. <laughs> That's why I used it. Okay? I got one of those in July, 1970. Is that the proof? Do I need that to know whether or not I have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Is that something I can stick in my, stick it in my coffin with me so I can take it to heaven and so I can show, here it is, I got this statement. I called you master one day. No. The evidence 
of faith directed according to God's instructions, which is to place it in the personal work of Jesus Christ, is our works. Is a life of obedience. Unquestioning, uncompromising obedience. I'll obey without question. I'll obey without delay. (laughs) I'll obey. All the things that we expect out of our kids. You know, don't question me, don't delay, don't argue. Just obey. But we'd rather argue with God. I think that's cultural. Really? Why can't we just submit and obey? Oh, you know, I, I don't know if that's, you know. That was before some of the amendments of our Constitution. I don't know if we need to follow that anymore. You don't understand our economy, God. Can't live without debt. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, we get, I could pick on, I could stomp on a lot of toes today, couldn't I? Unquestioned obedience is I'm going to express my faith in my activity of living an obedient life, a truly obedient life. And this is what Jesus Christ has been calling for all throughout this, this trip that he's been taking to Jerusalem all throughout Luke. Oh, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to, question, to, to, to obey me unquestioningly. Follow me. Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. I'm coming to your house. Okay. And on our way, by the way, I know what you're going to say and I know I've defrauded people and I'm going to return all that. I'm going to pay them back four times and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that people are taken care of and I'm going to just do what's right. Why? you're my Lord. And I'm going to place my faith right where it belongs. And it belongs in you. And only in you. I will have no other gods before you. This guy comes up and he says, you gave me a mina. It's your mina. I'll, look at his words. It's great. He says, oh, master. The, oh, I, I didn't get past. We just got done with master. Okay. That's the first word. Master. The second word is important too. Your. It's your mina. It is not fundamentally your faith, but the faith that God has put in you. We use those terms, this is my faith, you know, and Jesus Christ has even used it, your faith has made you whole. Um, but it's the idea, and this is what Ephesians 2, 8 tells us, is that it's a gift of God. Fundamentally, the capacity to believe is, is something that, that's unique and that God has placed in the man that, it makes us distinct from all creatures among a list of things, but it's one of the things that makes us distinct from the rest of creation. We have a capacity to believe something. And it was given to us not by our own creation, not by our own effort or energy, but is given to us by God's universal grace. It's yours. God, you've given this to us. It's only right that we should give it to you. Why would I place this faith that you've put in me in something that I made? You know, I carved this rock and now I'm going to believe that it can control the weather. I worked hard and built up this retirement fund. Now I'm going to trust in it.
The second word here is very powerful. This is your mina. You deserve it. You, you gave it to me. It's yours to begin with and it's yours at the end. And then, a great passive turn. Your mina has earned. Notice he didn't say, I took your mina and earned something with it. He says, your mina has earned this all by itself. And fundamentally, this is what we come to God with. We come to God and says, you know, I'm not trusting in the works. Um, I directed the faith the way you told me to. And now that faith that you gave me and I did with it what you told me to do with it has done this great thing in me called salvation. Called through the Spirit. All those things that God says we should be involved in and should be producing, all those works that we should be producing, we don't go and say, look what I've done. This is great. He says, look what the Mina did. Now, we all know the Mina didn't get up and walk itself to the investment place, did it? But you see, the attitude of the servant was correct. It, it was the Mina did it. Your Mina, your Mina has earned ten more. Your Mina has multiplied tenfold. Can your, can God's faith in you grow? Not God. Uh, see, that's all wrong. That's why we use the word your. Can your faith grow? Can it multiply? Absolutely. The faith that God placed in you, can it? Yes. As you place it in the right place and you see God's blessing and you build and, and, and grow in that and, and mature in that and you will see yourself applying it more and more. Oh, that we would have such men that would say, Lord, let your faith that you, that faith that you have placed in me abound. I'm simply giving it a little direction with my will. And acts of will are not works that we take credit for. We shouldn't anyway. We don't call it a work. And so we, we direct it the way God tells us to direct it. We recognize the beginning of the place. We Faith was something given to us by God anyway. And so we take no glory in it. And so just as Christ said, your faith has made you well, we come and we say, Lord, the faith you placed in me, your faith has earned. Ten meters. It has multiplied tenfold. And this is the response that God wants to hear. Oh, I can't believe my time. I'm crying out loud. Um, at Charity Baptist, they actually expected to be done 11.30, and so they gave me the pulpit at 5 till. They didn't get done till 5 till. So, Well done. Good servant. And we all think we're going to hear that. I want you to notice one guy heard that. One out of the ten heard, well done, good servant. We throw this phrase around like it's going to be commonplace in the day. And I want you to understand that it will be one of the rarest phrases spoken on that day that we are gathered in heaven. The rarest statement spoken will be well done good and faithful servant 
We're all sure that we're in line for that. And I hear it used extensively, usually at funerals, but I use our retirement events for people in the ministry. I hear it used um, in the Baptist Bowl, and they have the Good and Faithful Servant Award. Um, well, they're not dead yet, so I don't know that I'm willing to give those to anybody that's not already dead. Um, you can't become unfaithful right at the end. You know, it's happened. And so... Uh, we use that terminology, and we and we and I talk to Christians, and we and we use it so loosely that we've that we've made it meaningless. Understand this to be a rarity in the kingdom of God for someone to come up and have given himself entirely and and, and poured his faith entirely in obeying God and doing with his faith exactly what God told him to do with his faith. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And now because you have been, and this is great, God says, I've given you a little bit to take care of. You see, to us, we're like, Amina, it's like, oh, fourth of my income or annual income, this is a lot. God's entrusted me with a lot. And God says, no, that's just a little bit. We call it a great thing. Oh, we have faith. Ooh, God says, you got like a mustard seed thing going there. And not even that. It's not great. It's little. But when you direct in the right place, it, it, God can bless it and multiply and work in your life. And the end result, at the end, at the culmination, then we have him saying, well done, good servant. And then he says, you've been faithful in very little. <laughs> very little. Don't think that your faith giving you sight from being blind is huge. That's very little faith. Very little. I have authority over ten cities. And that little bit of faith is going to translate because it was directed properly according to the instructions of the Master. And it was directed properly. It's going to multiply and it's going to create this, in the end, this authority that is given to Him. Second one comes up. And we hear very similar terminology. Master, your mina has earned five minas. And again, we have the same terminology of master, that assent to understanding his lordship. We have the same idea that this is something that belongs to you, but we have a difference of outcome. And now, instead of ten minas, we have five minas. And we look at that and say, well, why? Well, you know, some people God blesses more than others. Baloney! I have to look at this and say, why? Why is there only five minas? And I look at the master's response. He says to him, likewise he says to him, well done, good servant. Is that in there? No. No, it's not. All he says is, likewise, I'll give you five cities. You see, there was a level of goodness. There was a level of servanthood there. Um, I call this the half-hearted effort. He's, he's come with that meaning. He had the exact same thing to begin with. He had the exact same instructions. So I can only conclude that the really real difference is the degree to which he applied the instructions. Brought forth a different result. I think a lot of people who expect to get to heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and, and hear this tenfold blessing um, are going to get there and hear, well, that's all right. Why? Because we gave it our half our effort. 
We give half the effort. And frankly, I think that's probably where I'm going to be. You gave the half the effort, you're going to have half the reward, but you made it. And overwhelmingly, the description of the time when we have to stand before God at our audit, when we have to answer for what we've done with our faith, with His faith in us, it describes a time of tears. And those aren't tears of joy or Christ wouldn't wipe them away. They're tears of sorrow. Because I did so little. You see, the comparison now isn't <laughs> I did more than him. The comparison now is I didn't do as much as you wanted. Because if I had really followed your instructions, like the good and faithful servant, I would be bringing forth a similar response, a similar product. The fact is he followed it more faithfully than I did. And so while I am here, while I'm enjoying uh, a partial reward uh, that's fitting to my partial service, um, there's a sorrow involved there. I could have done so much more. And that regret is something I'm almost at the point of anticipating at this point in my life. I'm 40-some years old, getting younger. Um, I, turned the, I turned it around. I'm not going to go past 47, so I'm 45 this year um, again. And I say, there's not much of my life left, even if the Lord tarries for me to live out a full life. And I'm starting to look back and go, did I give Him my all? And I wonder, I don't have much time left. And I think even less time, because I think His coming is that soon. And I don't know if I can make up for lost time anymore. Are we prepared to really follow God's Word without excuse, without delay, and without argument? That's what's required to be a well done, good and faithful servant. And I contend that of this generation at least, that's going to be a rarely spoken phrase by our Lord. And that's why He says, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? It's because we're given half-hearted effort at best. That's some of our best guys. I read through the history books of what men of faith were really about and how they lived their lives and I come away ashamed. I know He's my Master. I know it's a precious gift He's given us to invest. And I think I've invested some of it as He has instructed me. But I also know that it is not nearly what he expects. Well, there's still one more to go. You'll have to bear with me this morning. I'm sorry I'm going late. I'm not really, but it's just polite to say that. Third one comes. 
There's another one comes saying, Master, here's your Mina. Starts out pretty good. Master phrase. I, I have this statement back here that you are the Lord. I recognize that faith is something, a gift of God, a gift of His grace. But then it stops. We come to an abrupt stop. We find that that faith hasn't earned anything. And this is perhaps one of the most frightening out there for the church to hear. This faith hasn't heard anything. And he says, well, I know all about you. I know about who you are. And I know about how you do things. And I know how things happen and what your expectations are. And I was afraid. And so here's what I did. I took this precious thing that you gave me and I wrapped it up real careful and I tucked it away in a very safe place and I value it very highly and I put it over here in this little compartment in my life and, and, and look, I know exactly where it is and now that you're here, here it is, see? God says, you wicked servant. God says, you wicked servant. You knew all that about me, but you didn't do anything with that faith. You have all this head knowledge about me. You have all this understanding of it. You recognize me as Lord, but you do this. You don't apply your faith to me, not genuinely, not truly. No wonder it didn't do anything because you just tucked it away and it's for Sunday mornings or it's for, it's for these little times and, and you've got it carefully wrapped up in a napkin. You've got it, you know, preserved. You know, there it is. I, I believe in Jesus. So do the demons. And you think that that's sufficient? This is the faith that James was talking about that's dead. It's worthless. It's useless. It's useless to you and it's useless to God. He comes and he says, you brought me this? You're wicked. To sit there and make this declaration, I believe in Jesus, to have all this knowledge about God and I can spout you, oh, he's an austere man. And, oh, he does this and God does that and I can tell you about what he did and the, when Moses crossed the Dead Sea or the Red Sea or whatever sea it was, I don't remember. Or was it Joshua? Uh, and, and then there was... You know, I can tell you all the stories. I get them a little mixed up sometimes, but I know them. And I can tell you all this about God. And I have this little prayer thing that I did back there when I was 10. And there it is. I prayed the sinner's prayer. And so, Lord, here I am. Isn't it great I'm here? Aren't you pleased? I made it. One of the most serious portions of God's Word. It says you're going to be judged by your own mouth. You knew all this and did nothing. You all did all knew all this and you didn't obey. And faith without obedience is dead. It's evil thing. For it is faith in faith. Not in God. It's faith in some puny, worthless confession that was made at some day in your life when you were convinced that it would serve you somehow. It wasn't active. It didn't make a difference in your life. It certainly hasn't promoted obedience. And that kind of faith, God calls wicked. And look what He does with it. He says, take it away from Him. 
Give it to the one who has ten. And all the but he's already got ten. How can you do this? Because of the wickedness. You were given a great gift. You even know about the master who gave it to you. You even have lip service to claim that he is the one that you're going to serve and that you're afraid of him and that you have this kind of relationship. You know he gave it to you, but you still wasted it. And God says, take it from him. Give it to the, mina, to the man who has ten minas. And then, verse 26, I say to you that to everyone who has will be given... From him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And you might say, all right, Kirk, where are you going with this? Are you trying to say you're going to lose your salvation? I'm going to say that your faith is worthless. You were never saved to begin with. And in that appointed day, you're going to come trotting up there and you're going to go and pull it out of your pocket, this special little wrapped up thing. You're saying, well, here it is. I prayed on this day, the sinner's prayer. Aren't you lucky, God? He's going to look at you and say, you wicked servant. He's going to rip that out of your hand. And what do you think is going to happen to you? I don't believe that the warnings in Hebrews are unreal. I think they're genuine. They're true. You tasted the heavenly gift. You have that, that exposure. You have that opportunity. You, you make that lip service. You, you make that mental ascent. But you don't give your heart to it and your soul to it. You don't give your strength to it. You don't give your will to it. You will fall away and you will not return to repentance. That warning stands and it stands clear. And we can wrap all the theology around eternal security we want, but fundamentally Christ says, if you do not obey me, you are not my disciples. I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care what your theology declares. Fundamentally, this is faith, and this is the saving faith. This is enduring faith, and it is obedient faith. This man is wrapped up, I am sure, with the enemies of his, because he's wicked. And how can a wicked servant gain access to the heavenly realm? He won't. Some contend, oh, this is the one that gains access smelling of fire. Maybe. But I'm going to be hard-pressed if I'm going to preach to you that that's okay and you're going to get by and squeak in. I don't preach the minimum of God's standards. That's deplorable. My responsibility is to preach what Jesus preached. If you don't obey, you cannot be His disciple. That's what James preached. You don't want to do and don't claim to be. Because your faith without works is dead, worthless, useless. And let me share this word, wicked. Because you know and you won't live it. I come out of this passage convicted. I know I'm not what God wants me to be. Not like the well-done, good and faithful servant. And I know for a fact that this is the faith that Jesus wants to see when He comes and that He's going to say, will it really be here anywhere when I come? 
This kind of faith is what he wants. Not the half-hearted faith, not the lip faith, but the true, fully obedient, without question, without delay, without argument kind of obedient faith. This is what he asks for. This is what he looks for when he's coming. Will he accept your half-hearted faith? Maybe. You better make sure it's not just lip faith. Our time is short. Maybe you've wasted your walk of faith to this point, and all that's left is half. I would challenge you to give it all in what you have left. For the days are short. For the life of a man is like grass, like a flower. You don't have much time, even if Christ does wait till you're 80. Still not much time. That was for the young people. The older ones, you're like, oh, oh no, only 80. No, no time. And so today the call is, will you do with the mina God has put in your care? He's told you what to do with it. He's given you a clear instruction manual. Here it is. Here's your investment guide for that faith that God has instilled in you. Are you going to follow His guide? or someone else's, or make up your own. There's only one that's going to produce the results that God expects when He comes. And it's this one.